All right, it's good to see all of you tonight. Welcome, we're glad that you're here, and the uh, reports of my demise were greatly exaggerated, so I am here, so... But anyway, it's good to be back again. I appreciate Michael preaching for me. You just had an upset stomach on Saturday, but good to go again. And, and we're glad that you're here. Good to see you. Those joining us by live stream, we welcome you tonight as well. First day of fall, so we're, we've uh, reached it. And so we are to the autumnal equinox now. So, But of course, it's 90 degrees out there in Texas. So uh, wherever you're watching from, we have those watching from Erie, Pennsylvania every Wednesday. So welcome to you. It's probably not 90 in Erie tonight. But anyway... We're glad that you're here as we continue on with our fall Bible study, uh, looking at John chapter 7 tonight. So turn there, we'll have a word of prayer, and we'll be starting verse 1, all 52 verses of John chapter 7. Let's pray together. Father, thank you tonight for the opportunity to study your word together. Your word is power, it is life. It is everything that we need. It is the infallible, uh, inerrant Word of God as we read it. And we thank you, Father, because every time we open it, you speak to us. And I pray that you would do that powerfully tonight. God, I just thank you for our people. Thank you for those who are here. Thank you for those joining us online. And pray, Father, that your blessings will be upon them tonight as well. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. All right, chapter 7 of John, looking at our fall Bible study, the portrait of John, the portrait of Jesus, rather, from the Gospel of John, chapter 7. We'll look at the 50, first 52 verses tonight. And by now, opposition uh, to Jesus is starting to grow. It's gathering. It started in John 6. Up until until John 6, everything was going great. In fact, the first 234 verses of John, Jesus was popular. But now we get to John 6 last week, and then the opposition started. And it all centered around Jesus saying, I am the bread from heaven. And that was what did it. After that, they turned away from him because they realized that he was claiming to be God. So they turned away from him, and now the opposition and the hostility toward Jesus has begun. And tonight in chapter 7, we're going to see the hostility and the plans now for the first time to arrest Jesus. As you look at John chapter 7, it's divided into three time divisions. Before the Feast of Tabernacles, during the Feast of Tabernacles, and after the Feast of Tabernacles. That's all chapter 7. And if you could put a word that, that, that would uh, characterize each of those, it would be uh, disbelief and then debate and then division. And so that's a, a summary of chapter 7. So let's begin looking. First of all, Jesus at the Feast of Booths, chapter 1 through 24. That's letter A on your outline, Jesus at the Feast of Booths. Notice verse 1, after this, that was the teaching of the bread from heaven, after this, Jesus went about in Galilee. He would not go about in Judea because the Jews were seeking to kill him. Now, if you remember your map of Israel, or if you remember whenever, those of you who've been to Israel with us, Galilee and Jerusalem are night and day difference. Jerusalem's in the southern part, it's a city. Galilee's the northern part, it's rural, it's open air, it's, a, it's pretty countryside, it's a lot of fruit. Southern part around Jerusalem, hot and dry and rocky. And so night and day between Jerusalem in the south and Galilee in the north. So we're told in verse 1, Jesus stayed in Galilee of the north because in the south they were trying to kill him. 
Jerusalem's where the religious leaders were. Galilee's where the fishermen were. In general, the fishermen loved him. Religious leaders hated him. So he's staying in Galilee because they were trying to kill him in Judea, Jerusalem, and it was not time for him to die on the cross yet, so that's why he stayed there. Verse 2, now the Jews' feast of booths was at hand. I'll tell you why that's significant. If you've ever heard of the Feast of Booths that the Jews celebrated, it's our Feast of Tabernacles, or in Hebrew it's called Sukkot. Uh, six months after Passover, Feast of the Booth, it is the most popular of the three main Jewish feasts. It's the fall feast where they celebrate gathering in the grapes and the olives in Israel. So it's a grape and olive harvest festival. And the reason they call it the booths or tabernacles is because it's commemorating Israel's journey in the wilderness in the Old Testament. You remember 40 years in the wilderness. So they commemorate that by building a temporary booth or a little bitty, uh, they put sticks up and, and it's usually open air. They put sides, canvas sides around it, four sides. And so for a week, for seven days, they live in this booth to commemorate what their forefathers lived in for 40 years in the wilderness. They still do it today. In fact, um, uh, today Jews still celebrate the Feast of Booth. In fact, it's going on right now. Started on Monday, it'll go until next Monday, the 20th of September through the 27th of September, always about the same time of year, every year. So right now, uh, the Jews are celebrating Sukkot, our Feast of Booths, our Feast of Tabernacles. Now, this Feast of Booths in Jesus' day had strong messianic connotations. I'll tell you why when we get to verse 37. So it tells us, verse 2, it was the feast of booths was at hand. And so, verse 3, Jesus' brothers said to him, now who were his brothers? Well, his half-brothers, Mary and Joseph's kids. They'd be half-brothers because they had the same mom, they had different dads. Jesus' father was God, and their father was Joseph, but both had mother Mary as their mother, so they're called Jesus' half-brothers and half-sisters. His brothers said to him, leave here and go to Judea, to Jerusalem, that your disciples also may see the works you are doing, for no one works in secret if he seeks to be known openly. If you do these things, show yourself to the world." for not even his brothers believed in him. Now stop there for a second. What were they saying? Jesus' family members, his brothers and his sisters, knew him to be a miracle worker. I mean, they grew up with him. He's older brother, right? And so they grew up with him, but now he turns into an itinerant preacher and he starts working miracles. They believed him to be a miracle worker, but they did not believe him to be the Messiah. They did not believe he would be the Messiah. He was the Messiah until after the resurrection. So at this point, they didn't believe he was the Messiah. 
They thought he's a miracle worker. So what they said was, Jesus, it's Feast of Booths. Why hang out up here in Galilee? Go down to Jerusalem. That's where the crowd is. You're a miracle worker. Do your miracles, and you will have great crowds following you. Oh, Jesus, just go. You'll be so popular. So they said that for his popularity. Listen to how he responded, verse 6. Jesus said to them, my time has not yet come. In other words, my time to, for popularity, my time for going to Jerusalem to die is not here yet. But your time is always here. Now, what did he mean by that? He used two different words for time. The word time, the first time, his time, is the word ahora, which meant time with a purpose. The second time is kairos, which meant every day going about your activities. So he was even making a statement to them that my time is different than your time. I have purpose why I'm here. You just go about your day. And that was his response to the verse 7. The world cannot hate you, but it hates me. Because I testify about it that its works are evil. You go up to the feast. I'm not going up to this feast, for my time has not yet fully come. After saying this, he remained in Galilee. So his brothers said, let's go. Nope, you go. So they went down to Jerusalem to observe the feast of booths, and Jesus stayed behind. Verse 10, after this, Jesus had gone up to the feast. So he waited a few days, seven days long. He waited a few days, and then he joined them at the feast. Then he also went up, not publicly, it says in verse 10, but in private. So he didn't make a grand entrance. He just slowly behind the scenes went to the feast. Verse 11. The Jews were looking for him at the feast, saying, where is he? Because they thought a miracle worker would be there too. That's where the crowd was. And there was much muttering about him among the people. Some said, he's a good man. Others said, no, he is leading the people astray. Yet for fear of the Jews, no one spoke openly of him. Now, here's what's interesting. Notice it says, no, he's leading people astray. The Talmud is a Jewish commentary of the law. So it's rabbi's interpretation of what the law says, like a commentary that, that you would read. The Talmud says that for someone to mislead the people or deceive the people publicly, there was a penalty for doing that. The penalty was death by stoning. Can you believe that? If you mislead the people publicly, your penalty could be the death penalty. We would have a lot of politicians in trouble today, wouldn't we, if that was so some of them said, Jesus is a good man. The others say, well, he, he's leading the public astray and deceiving them. Maybe we need to get rid of him. But they didn't say anything because some of the Jews believed in him. Verse 14. About the middle of the feast, Jesus went up to the temple and began to teach. Now starting in verse 14 and going through verse 44, we have basically the question of, Jesus, where did you get your authority? 
Where did you come from? And then he promises the Holy Spirit. So let's look at all those. Verse 14, in the middle of the feast, it's about four days in, three or four days in, Jesus went up to the temple and began teaching. Verse 15, the Jews marveled, saying, how is it that this man has learning when he has never studied? Now, in biblical days, most Jewish men could read and write. Not all of them, but most of them could. Women couldn't. So, here is Jesus who could read and who could write. That wasn't the amazing part to them because most men could. The amazing part was that he was so well versed in Scripture and that he was so knowledgeable and powerful in his teaching and he hadn't even been to seminary. That was the rabbinical school, the school of the rabbis. If they went to the school of the rabbis, those were the good teachers. Jesus had no formal education, but he was a powerful teacher. And it just, it threw him for a loop. He, he's, where does he get this learning? And then, of course, uh, verse 16, Jesus answered, My teaching is not mine, but his who sent me. What do you mean by that? Every rabbi that taught usually quoted other rabbis as authority. Preachers do that too. We'll quote other preachers. We'll quote theologians. And they did it in those days because it gained credit. The more, the more rabbis you could quote, the more credibility you had. And so they're, they're saying, Jesus, you haven't been to school. Where did you get all this learning? And he said, I'm quoting someone greater than me. It's not me speaking. It's my father in me who's speaking. Verse 17, if anyone's will is to do God's will, he will know whether the teaching is from God or whether I'm speaking on my own authority. The one who speaks on his own authority seeks his own glory. But the one who seeks the glory of him who sent him is true, and in him there is no falsehood. Now, it's something interesting Jesus said there. I hope you caught it. What he said in verse 17 was, if you really want to know God's, uh, to, to, uh, to know true teaching, you have to submit to God's will. If you want to know true teaching, you must submit to God's will. So in other words, you can't just say, I want to know more about the Bible but you don't obey what you already know. He says it doesn't work that way. you got to put into practice what you know. Then he'll teach you more. So, so Jesus was, did not say accuracy of understanding equals submission to God because there are some godly people out there who have some very erroneous views. Obedience to God produces discernment. You obey, he gives you more. You obey that, he gives you more. But if you don't obey what you know, he said you won't get any more until you obey what you know. So that's really a good word for all of us. So what's kind of interesting is here, they are raising questions about Jesus' competence as a teacher. And he's raising questions about their competence as listeners. Because he's saying, you don't really listen. That. We're talking about my teaching. Let's talk about your listening. 
Verse 19. Has not Moses given you the law? Yet none of you keeps the law. Why do you seek to kill me? Verse 20. The crowd answered, You have a demon. Who's seeking to kill you? They, they didn't know anybody's trying to kill him, but he knew they were. The, the killing Jesus talk was behind the scenes, and he knew it, but the crowd didn't know it yet. So the reason they said he has a demon was because in biblical days, paranoia or mental illness was equated with demon possession. So they're going, Jesus, you're crazy. You must have a demon. Now what's interesting is there's no demon possession in all of the gospel of John. Matthew, Mark, and Luke, there is. John never mentions demon possession. Casting out demons, he never mentions them. But it's in this where they say, you have a demon, you're mentally ill. And Jesus said, I did one work and you marveled at it. That was the healing of the man at Bethesda, remember? I did one work, you marvel at it. Moses gave you circumcision, not that it's from Moses, but from the fathers. And you circumcise a man on the Sabbath. If on the Sabbath a man receives circumcision, so that the law of Moses may not be broken, are you angry with me because on the Sabbath I made a man's whole body well? So go back to the pool of Bethesda. You remember that. It was on the Sabbath. A man had been lame 38 years, and Jesus on the Sabbath healed him, and they were angry at him not, not obeying the Sabbath. And so he asked them a question. The Jews had a hierarchy of laws on the Sabbath that you could not break. And there was a priority list. At the lower end, yeah, you might break those, get by with it. But the ones on the top, you can't. And Jesus didn't do the priority list. God didn't make the priority list. The Jews did. And so Jesus said, you had this priority list, and high on your priority list is if a person needs to be circumcised, a child needs to be circumcised, and the eighth day happens to fall on a Sabbath, by all means do it because it makes them a Jew. That's important. You can, you can do that on the Sabbath, they said, but you can't do other things. So Jesus had a question for them. If you can circumcise a baby on the Sabbath, why can't I heal a man who hadn't walked for 38 years? What's the problem with that? And they didn't respond. But notice verse 24. Do not judge by appearance, but judge with right judgment. Okay, time out. Hold on a second. We got to talk about this. Because all I hear in our culture is you're not supposed to judge. Wait a minute. Let's read that again. Do not judge by appearances, but judge with right judgment. Now he tells us to judge. I never hear John 7, 24 ever quoted in our culture. I hear John 5, 1, I mean Matthew 5, 1 all the time. Judge not lest you be judged. And I hear that all the time. But they don't go to Matthew 5, 5, which is only four verses after that, where Jesus says, if your brother has a speck in his eye, get it out. You'll see clearly to get the speck out of your brother's eye when you take the log out of yours. And then we come to John 7, and Jesus tells us to judge. You don't hear that today. 
Anytime somebody says, well, homosexuality is wrong, you can't judge. And it always comes, any, anything, I, anything you say is wrong, you can't judge. Bible says don't judge. But the Bible does say to promote truth and to live truth. And the Bible does say those things. It does say to remove the speck. Jesus said uh, that if your brother offends you, that we're to forgive him. But he also talks about, you know, the sins being cast out as well. He, the, Paul talks about that, 1 Timothy 5, that we are to rebuke a brother. And Jesus said the same. So we hold to truth, and what Jesus is saying, verse 24, is judge with right judgment. Don't judge superficially. Don't judge hypocritically. Don't call someone else out on what you're doing. But you take the standard of God's Word, and you don't back down from it. It's truth. Yes, homosexuality is wrong. That's not judging. That is taking the truth of Scripture not in a superficial way, not a hypocritical way, and saying, here is the standard. So our culture pulls out one phrase. Don't judge. The Bible says you can't judge. And it's all you read and it's all you hear. But they never mention John 7, 24, where Jesus tells us, judge, but do it rightly. Now let's go to letter B on your outline. Can this be the Christ? Verses 25 uh, through 31. Some of the people of Jerusalem, therefore, verse 25 said, Is not this the man whom they seek to kill? And here he is speaking openly, and they say nothing to him. Can it be that the authorities really know that this is the Christ? But we know where this man comes from. And when the Christ appears, no one will know where he comes from. Now, hold on a second. I thought they all knew that the, that the Messiah was going to come from Bethlehem. Isn't that prophesied? Well, they weren't sure if they believed it. The Jews believed that the Messiah would come. And some Jews believed, yes, he's going to come out of, out of be born in Bethlehem and come out of Nazareth. But others go, no, I don't think that's what those prophecies meant. We don't know where the Messiah is coming from. So there are a lot of Jews that said, we don't know where the Messiah is going to come from. Even today, some say that. So that's what it means, says verse 27. But we know where this man comes from. He's from Nazareth. But when the Christ appears, no one's going to know where he comes from. Verse 28. So Jesus proclaimed as he taught in the temple, you know me. You know where I come from, but I have not come of my own accord. He who sent me is true, and him you do not know. I know him, for I come from him, and he sent me. So what he's saying was, you think I'm from Nazareth and Bethlehem. That's just where I was born and raised. I'm really from the Father. So you really don't know where I'm coming from. Verse 30. So they were seeking to arrest him, but no one laid a hand on him because his hour had not yet come. Yet many of the people believed in him, and they said, When the Christ appears, will he do more signs than this man has done? Some are beginning to wonder, is it the Christ? And others are really confused by him. 
So they send officers to arrest them. Go to letter C on your outline, verses 32 to 36. And they send officers to arrest him. Verse 32, the Pharisees heard the crowd muttering these things about him. And the chief priests and Pharisees sent officers to arrest him. Now, let me stop there for a moment. These officers would have been Levites, not Roman guards. The Ro Roman government's not involved here. The Jews, the Jewish uh, religious system had their own set of of uh, in, police officers, enforcers. It would be like it would be like First Baptist Garland having our own police force and the city of Garland having a police force, and we would work with them. They would be greater than us, but we still have jurisdiction over our own members. It's kind of ridiculous, isn't it? But that's how the Jews were. They had their own police force. The, the religious leaders did, and then they were superseded by the Roman guards. But they could, if someone was breaking Jewish law, send officers and go legally arrest them from the, the Jewish courts. And so they sent Levites, not Roman guards, but Levites to go arrest him. Verse 33, Jesus then said, I will be with you a little longer, and then I'm going to him who sent me. You will seek me, and you will not find me where I am you cannot come. Now, hold on a second. Is he telling the Jews they're not going to heaven? Yeah. They're not going by birth. They're going by new birth. But not just because they're Jews. They have to be born again. So, whenever he says where I'm going, you can't come, that was a shot. A Judaism. Because they thought they were the only ones going to heaven. And Jesus is saying, where I go, you can't come. Because as he told Nicodemus, you must be born again. Verse 35, the Jews said to one another, where does this man intend to go that we will not find him? Does he intend to go to this to dispersion among the Greeks and teach the Greeks? What do you mean by the dispersion? Some of you may remember as you, as you studied this, it's called the Diaspora. That's where Jews were persecuted. They, let, they fled from Israel and went all over. I mean, they scattered literally all over the Roman Empire. It was called the Diaspora or some called it the Dispersion, where Jews went to other parts of the empire to live because of persecution. So, some thought, ah, he's going to the other parts of the empire and he's telling us we can't come there. So that's where he's going. He must be going to minister to Jews living among the Greeks and other parts of the empire. Verse 36, what does he mean by saying you will seek me and you will not find me and where I am you cannot come? So they're scratching their heads. So, so far they didn't know where he came from. And they didn't know where he was going. They're totally confused by Jesus. And then he said something starting in verse 37 that really gets interesting. Now before we get to verse 37, I need to set the background. It'll make more sense. Let me explain something. It's called a water rite, R-I-T-E. At the Feast of Tabernacles, the, the Jews had this tradition Every morning uh, for seven days of, I'm not certain if they still do that today or not, uh, but I know they did it in biblical days. It was called the water rite. Every morning for seven days during the Feast of Booths, uh, 
the high priest would lead a procession from the pool of Siloam, where Jesus healed a man. Was it a coincidence that was his first healing? No. He was making the connection to this. He would lead a procession from Bethesda, the pool, to the temple, and Jewish crowds would follow. Every morning, seven days, crowds would follow. And here's what the Jews would do. The high priest would be carrying with him water, dipped out of the pool of Bethesda, and he would take it to the temple. Not, not far, maybe a mile, maybe not that far. So the procession would go from the pool of Bethesda every morning to the temple. High priest carrying water. Other priests behind the high priest would also carry water pitchers and they would carry it through the water gate to the south side of the temple into the temple courtyard. Remember they couldn't enter the Holy of Holies where the altar was so they had a tube that ran from the Holy of Holies to the altar outside where they could pour water from there outside and this water would go in as a sacrifice to the altar. And so they would do this, and the Jews would follow behind. The priests would carry the water, and they did this every morning. And the Jews that were following behind, they would be singing. They would sing Isaiah 55, 1, and Isaiah 12, 3. Ho, oh, everyone that thirsts, come to the waters. Come draw joyously to the springs of salvation. And they thought... Every morning of the Feast of the Booths, this water from the Pool of Bethesda, the Pool of Siloam, would go to the altar and would become salvation one day for the Jews. Water was life. So every morning the priest would do this and the people would follow. Every male Jew in the procession would hold a twig in one hand and a fruit in the other. Why the twig and the fruit? The twig was, that was symbolic of the wilderness, remember? They had to live every night in booths that they made out of trees, twigs. And the fruit was from the land they finally got to, the promised land that had luscious fruit in it. So it was celebrating the 38, 40-year journey and the fruit that came afterwards. And that was symbolic of salvation. Water is going to bring blessing. And it's going to bring the fruit of righteousness. And one day salvation will come to the Jews because water and rain were blessings from God. Still is in that part of the country. It's dry. So water is life. So it's symbolic. We're going from the pool of Bethesda. Some would drink out of the pool of Bethesda and then get in the procession. And the water that went to the altar. They did this seven straight days. Now, on the eighth day, as soon as the Feast of Booths was over, they, they still considered it to be the feast day. It's the day after, but everybody was gathering. They were getting ready to leave and go back home. And it's just kind of a, no, there was no procession. There was no water. There was no, none of the, of the, the of all of that from the procession from the pool. But on the eighth day, they still considered it a feast day because people were gathering up and going home. Still a festive atmosphere. So, on the eighth day, we're told, Jesus stood up. Rabbis usually sat to teach. So, when he stood up, they thought, oh, something important's coming. And he said, verse 37, on the last day of the feast, which would be actually the day after, the great day, Jesus stood up and cried out, if anyone thirsts, 
Let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his belly or his heart will flow rivers of living water. Now this he said about the spirit whom those that believed in him were to receive. For as yet the spirit had not been given because Jesus was not yet glorified. Here's what he was saying. Remember, there was no water procession that day. So here's what he said. He stood up on the eighth day and said, no water's poured out, but come to me, I'm the living water. And if you come to me for salvation, there will come out of your innermost being, your heart, your belly, will come rivers of living water, which was the Holy Spirit that will give you life. So he was using the imagery he healed at the pool of Bethesda. He is the living water that flowed to the altar of God and he came from God. And so their mouths must have been open going, whoa, he's claiming to be what we did for seven straight days. He's the water. He's life. And they're starting to finally put together what he said. Now, this verse, verse 38, Pentecostals and a lot of Charismatics believe that out of the heart of flowing of living waters is speaking in tongues. So they believe once you're saved, this passage is proof you need to speak in tongues. That's a pretty far stretch from what I just explained, isn't it? I think so too. I don't think it's what it's talking about. What it's talking about is the promise of the Spirit that would come in Acts. Because Joel 2, 28 through 30, prophesied that when the Messiah came, the Spirit would come after him and would fill the people with living waters and out of their heart or their belly, some, some uh, translate it womb, some translate it the center of being, out of who they are on the inside will come living waters that result in eternal life. I'm not talking about speaking in tongues. He's talking about the Holy Spirit that would come at Pentecost. Now, once he said that, as you can imagine, it caused an uproar. And the people became divided over him claiming to be the water that went to the altar of God. Look at verse 40, division among the people. When they heard these words, some of the people said, this really is the prophet. Others said, this is the Christ. But others said, is the Christ to come from Galilee? Has not the scripture said, Christ comes from the offspring of David and comes from Bethlehem, the village where David was? It's interesting, the very passage that convinced Jesus' critics he could not be the Messiah is one of the strongest passages that proves he is. Verse 43, so there was a division among the people over him. Some of them wanted to arrest him, but no one laid hands on him. Now look at verse 45, this is kind of odd. The officers then came to the chief priests and Pharisees who said to them, Why did you not bring him? The officers answered, No one ever spoke like this man. 
So here's the picture. Remember when the Pharisees and religious leaders sent the Levites to go arrest him? They went to arrest him. They heard him speak. They didn't arrest him, and they went back. They got back. The religious leaders said, we sent you to arrest him. Where is he? And they said, well, you know, boy, he was such a powerful speaker. We just couldn't do it. Leon Morris, one of the great New Testament theologians, said, they went to arrest him with weapons, and he arrested them with his words. They were the ones that were captured. And he was right. Well, the Pharisees were angered that they came back without him. And they answered, verse 47, the Pharisees answered, Have you also been deceived? Have any of the authorities of the Pharisees believed in him? But this crowd that does not know the law is cursed. So they're saying, were you believing in him also? Were you hoodwinked? You Levites. But then somebody speaks up in verse 50 that's interesting. Look at verse 50. Nicodemus. You remember him from John 3? You must be born again. We're never told whether he was or not. Nicodemus, part of the Sanhedrin, of the religious leaders, speaks up. Verse 50, Nicodemus, who had gone to him before and who was one of them, said to them, Does our law judge a man without first giving him a hearing and learning what he does? So Nicodemus defends Jesus to the Sanhedrin. Could it be that after John 3, Nicodemus got saved and became born again? Or could it be that he's four chapters later in the process of becoming saved, still thinking about it, sympathizing with Christ? And they replied, verse 52, Are you from Galilee too? Search and see that no prophet arises from Galilee. Well, they were wrong. There were two prophets from Galilee. Noah, I mean uh, uh, Noah, <laughs> Jonah and Nahum both were from Galilee. So they were wrong there. But they were saying, well, you must be a sympathizer of Jesus as well. And we're not told of Nicodemus' response. Could have been. We know that he took up for Jesus here before the Sanhedrin. And later at his resurrection, or rather crucifixion, we see it was Nicodemus who came and buried the body with Joseph of Arimathea. So Nicodemus, definitely a sympathizer of Christ. Well, we end John 7 there. It's a fascinating chapter with the Feast of Booths and all the imagery of water and what Jesus said. Really interesting passage. And next week, we're going to begin chapter 8 with a woman caught in adultery. And Jesus gets into more trouble next week. Any questions or comments before we pray and close? We have microphones here you can come to quickly if you can. And so those uh, online can hear your question as well. Anyone before we close? All right, good to see you tonight. Hope that you have a blessed week. Let's pray and we'll close. God, thank you for your word. And I just want to thank you for just how Jesus taught, how he lived. Lord, it would have been wonderful to, to, been, to have been there and, and actually witnessed all of this. But I'm so thankful it's recorded where we can relive it on Wednesday nights. God, thank you that you did send Jesus as the living water coming forth from us. Father, whenever we know him and trust him as Savior, and I pray that tonight that we would all walk in the truth of Christ and guide us this next week. Bring us back Sunday to worship you. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. God bless you all. See you Sunday.